to the BISC podcast. After 18 months of online teaching, we are back to real-life classes, and I hadn't realized how much I missed live students until you all returned, and it is a glorious thing. The castle has sprung back to life with curious and intelligent young people, and I genuinely could not be happier to see the castle once again filled with the energy of the students. So this episode is dedicated to you, the students who have persevered in your education, even through the most difficult of times. Stick around, for in this episode I have a special feature where I interview the castle's new research coordinator, Dr. Claire Kennan. So here we go with the first podcast of fall 2021. But first, the news. A Canadian Justin asks, Is it too late now to say sorry? It's not easy being green, And there's panic at the ESSO. Canadian Prime Minister and 1980s hair model Justin Trudeau held a snap election in Canada only to discover that he had failed to win a majority government and the nation is in roughly the same political shape that it was in before the election. However, only one in ten of polled Canadians is happy with the result. So, not an amazing success. For most Canadians, the big question is, How did we spend $650 million on this? In other news, cartoon character Baby Daddy and part-time Prime Minister Boris Johnson quoted Kermit the Frog in a speech to the United Nations this week. In an at-times partially coherent speech, Mr. Johnson babbled about Kermit being wrong when he sang It's Not Easy Being Green. He looked the world in the eye and called us all rowdy teenagers who needed to grow up and then gabbled about ice flows turning into martinis in New York before telling everyone to blow out the candles of the world. It should go without saying that this man is the product of the country's most elite schools and is now the leader of the sixth richest nation in the world. Perhaps it was to Mr. Johnson's speech that climate activist Greta Thunberg referenced when she, in her speech to the same audience, said this. There is no planet B. There is no planet blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. This is not about some expensive, politically correct, green act of bunny-hugging or blah, blah, blah. Build back better, blah, blah, blah. Green economy, blah, blah, blah. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. Net zero, blah, blah, blah. Climate neutral, blah, blah, blah. This is all we hear from our so-called leaders. Words, words that sound great, but so far has led to no action. Our hopes and dreams drown in their empty words and promises. Of course, we need constructive dialogue, but they've now had 30 years of blah, 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 and where has that led us? Over 50% of all our CO2 emissions have occurred since 1990, and a third since 2005. All this while the media is reporting on what the leaders say that they are going to do, instead of what they are actually doing and then not holding leaders accountable for their action, or rather inaction. And finally, there was panic at the ESSO. The UK, after suffering a pandemic, followed by food shortages, months of driver shortages, and an energy crisis, and another food crisis, and a medical crisis, and a CO2 crisis, and a fertilizer crisis, and an environmental crisis, has crashed into yet another crisis, as petrol stations across the country have run dry. 
This resulted in mass panic buying as people filled their cars to be able to go to work, hospitals, or to buy food, and has resulted in finger-pointing and blame-laying by anyone and everyone who has access to an iPhone or a national television network. In truth, a combination of limited supply and a shortage of specialized heavy goods vehicle drivers with licenses to transport hazardous materials has started to bite, and while politicians and the media have been reluctant to identify Britain's withdrawal from the European Union as the cause, the shortage of European drivers and the solution being to extend temporary visas to European drivers in order to hire more European drivers give pretty compelling evidence as to what has caused this shortage. If I'm not into work next week, it will be because I've been left stranded on the side of the road trying to get my car to start by shoving a Red Bull and a Pepperami into the fuel tank. But don't ever say the B word. Brexit. It's all about Brexit. And that's all for the news. Dr. Claire Kennan is our research coordinator, and it was my very great pleasure to sit down and chat with her about her upcoming projects. I'm here with Dr. Claire Kennan. She is the research coordinator of the BISC. Hi, Claire. Can you introduce yourself? Hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, yes, I am the new research coordinator here at the BISC and also a history lecturer as well. So by training, I'm a medievalist, which means that I specialise in history from the period about 1300 to 1500. Um, I'm a little bit flexible with that, uh, primarily looking at Britain and Northern Europe. I've worked at a number of UK universities and in various archives, so I'm hoping I can bring my knowledge and my skills to this new role. Excellent. And your role is the research coordinator, so what specifically does that role entail? So it entails looking after student research, whether that's individual projects, group projects, uh, the end of term student conference, which you'll be hearing more about in due course, as well as um, looking after staff research, so promoting staff research, getting it out to the wider public, looking for particular funding streams that we can utilise and putting on various research events, so lecture series and things like that. Is there a particular research project that you're working on right now? Yes, there is. Um, one of our really exciting research projects that we're working on is called The Colonel and the Party Palace. And this is going to be exploring what life was like here at the castle a century ago. So we're now in 2021, we're going to be heading back to the 1920s to see what was happening here, who was living and working here, and all about the party lifestyle that's synonymous with the era. And the title then is very deliberate, The Party Palace. Can you speak on that for a minute? Of course. So the reason that we've gone for The Party Palace is that the 1920s immediately conjures up images of things like The Great Gatsby, Downton Abbey those kind of wonderful parties with the flapper dresses, the Charleston dancing, the jazz music, the cocktails. And that's quite a popular image that we see in the media a lot of the time. And for particularly the wealthy population, it was very much a decade of partying. The communities have just come out of really a tough period in history with the end of the First World War. And people wanted to celebrate life and to look forward. So we do see the 1920s as this real era of glamour, partying and excess. Now that's quite interesting because, of course, at the same period in North America, you get temperance movements, uh, particularly prohibition. And a lot of the Americans that you spoke about, Gatsby, for example, uh, Fitzgerald moves to Paris, where there's a liberal attitude. Do you think there was a more liberal attitude in Europe then after the war? I think 
there are conflicting attitudes. So obviously this party lifestyle would not have been available to everybody. If you were an ordinary servant working at the castle, you wouldn't have been joining in with the colonel's parties and drinking champagne from dawn till dusk. You would have had a very different lifestyle. And one of the research themes in this project will be looking at the, the lives and the working conditions of ordinary people. And one of the ways that we're hoping to do that is by looking at who was living and working at the castle using the 1921 census. Now this document is really exciting for researchers because no one's been able to look at it for a hundred years. So when it's released in January to the general public, we'll be able to see for the first time who was present at the castle on that night. And we can then use that information to research more about who these people were what were their lives like? What were they doing? How were they surviving day to day? Which, of course, is a direct contrast to the colonel's lifestyle, which was very glamorous. That sounds amazing. So what are some ways then that students could get involved in this research project? So we've got lots of different ways for students to get involved. Hopefully ones that will appeal to you know, your individual interests and career aspirations. So you could be involved in one of the research strands, which will involve doing primary research at different archives or using different online sources. You could be involved in helping us to arrange one of our many planned themed events. So we've got some very exciting projects coming up with um, a local cinema that was built in the 1920s. We've got themed sewing bees and themed performances. So there's Lots of fun ways for students to be involved if they're not so interested in the direct research aspect. And of course, there is really the opportunity to get involved in the heritage sector. We are a heritage site, so we want to present all of the information that we uncover to the wider public through pop-up exhibitions, through online content, through themed tours. So there's lots of different ways to get involved depending on how much time you'd like to give, and what you're personally interested in. And I've seen some posters for a research information session. When was that going to be? So the launch event is going to be this Thursday, so that's the 30th of September, in the ballroom between 3 and 4.30. You can find out more about the project, more about the history of the castle in the 1920s, and you can come along and enjoy some free cake and coffee. Cake and coffee are always good draws. Now we're on the topic of food then. Do you have any cocktails of the 20s that you think the students might want to try and make? So I've got a couple. Um, first up, I would say a classic martini in a proper martini glass. And I'm talking, you know, that, that wonderful sort of triangular shape. That's, that's very 20s. But also any of the champagne-based cocktails. So anything like a peach bellini would be lovely in one of the traditional champagne sauces, mm. which, unlike a champagne flute, a sort of... Um, shallow round dishes on, on lovely long stemmed glasses so either of those would be brilliant i think see i quite like a kier royale where oh. you get the color of the, the yeah. uh, kier. and food are there any particular dishes of the 20s that the students might want to try making themselves so actually i did a quick google search of this the other day and there are so many recipes that actually look quite tasty that i would recommend but the one thing I really want to have a go at is what is called an icebox cake. And the reason that these came about was um, in the 20s, we have lots of technological inventions. And so you get things like iceboxes being mass produced and, and purchased by more people. And that's it's essentially an early freezer. Icebox cake is essentially 
biscuits or wafers sandwiched with flavoured cream, covered in cream and decorated, and then popped in your icebox so you could bring it out and serve it after dinner. So I like it because it's nice and simple to make. There's lots of flavour combinations and it stores well. And I think it's not too faffy, that. Have you ever made one of these? I have, but I didn't know it was called an icebox cake. And they are a beautiful thing because the biscuits absorb whatever alcohol you've used and they transform into a kind of trifle-type dish where it's got an even consistency all the way through. And you serve that and nobody knows that it's just biscuits sandwiched with cream. They're brilliant. I remember making one when I was quite young with my grandma. She introduced me, but again, had no idea that's what they were called. And she did some fabulous combinations. So she did a chocolate and orange one, which I loved, minus the alcohol for young children, obviously. We had orange juice in that. Um, But yeah, there's all kinds of flavor combinations. So easy. And if you're thinking, I'm going to throw a dinner party, I haven't had time to pop to the supermarket, what's in my fridge? Perfect. I have a particular interest in in historical food, and one of my favourite books is Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management, and that has some spectacular dishes, but it also has some things that are truly staggeringly boring, like a toast sandwich. And of course, this is at a time where the Pullman loaf has just been invented. So the idea of these square loaves of bread that you see in supermarkets now and take for granted was a big deal. You know, you've heard the expression, the best thing since sliced bread. Well, there was a time when sliced bread didn't exist. So as a kind of celebration of sliced bread, the toast sandwich comes out, which is literally a slice of white bread, a piece of toast, salt and pepper, and a slice of white bread. (laughs) And it is oddly delicious because you get these textural components as you bite through the soft white bread and then the crispy toast and it's salted and peppered. (laughs) It's it's a real thing, the toast sandwich. We're going to see a a wave of those being produced in in kitchens across the castle. Mm, The celebration of the Pullman loaf. (laughs) which I think is a terrible, terrible loaf of bread. Because, you know, I grew up eating Wonder Bread, you know, Hovis, and thinking that's what bread was. And then suddenly I discovered this world of actual loaved bread and thought, why did we ever move away from that? Preservatives. It lasts longer. (laughs) Anyway, Claire, uh, you've got a range of projects coming up. Uh, The information session for the students is on Thursday. It is, yes, in the ballroom, uh, three o'clock. Do come along to find out more about the project, the history of the castle, and also enjoy some of the free coffee and cake that's on offer. There will be cake. Thank you so much for your time, Claire. Thank you. Have a great week. And finally, a short piece on the history of Britain in a hundred objects. Welcome to the history of Britain in a hundred objects. In this series, students of BISC 100 and BISC 101 will be creating a catalogue of material cultural artefacts that together tell the story of Britain. And so to inaugurate this series, here is item number one, the Matthew Paris itinerary from London to the Holy Land. In the British Library, there is a document collection known as the Royal Manuscripts. In that collection, there is a set of eight folios, and they together make up a small portion of the work of the great 13th century medieval monk and chronicler, Matthew Paris. Several pages in this folder are devoted to the Paris itinerary from London to the Holy Land, and this comprises our first object in our history of Britain in a hundred objects. Matthew Paris was a monk at the Abbey of St. Albans, and his major work is the Chronica Majora, 
a chronicle of the times. Between 1250 and 1259 AD, Paris created a collection of drawings that outline a journey, a pilgrimage, from London to Jerusalem. This isn't a map so much as a set of diagrams. The page scrolls from bottom to top, from left to right. The itinerary is a collection of drawn spaces, each representing a significant destination on the pilgrim's journey, informing the pilgrim where he might stop, rest, and pray before continuing on his long voyage to the Holy Land. At the bottom left corner, there is a drawing of a walled city with a large central church and an imposing tower. This is London. Rising above that, the next stops are Rochester Cathedral, Canterbury, also represented by a cathedral, and then Dover, represented by a great castle and edged by a wild and rough sea. The next thing you might notice as you look at the map is the use of rich color. The sea is a set of tumbling waves in green. The roof of the cathedral in Montreuil is a stunning cobalt blue, and Canterbury shimmers, ringed with gold highlights. There are decorative edges to the map, using the same blue and also pink, and there are several thick, decorative bands of gold leaf. This is a map made with care, but who is it for? What medieval traveler would use such a fine map on their journey? A closer inspection of the roads between the cities reveals something more to us. The journey time between each centre is enumerated, between Canterbury and Dover, it reads Pied, Trois Journées, Three Days by Foot, the time it took, back in 1250, to cross between these two cities. The use of language is telling. While written in an abbey, the language is not the Latin of the church, but rather French, the language of the English aristocracy. If we travel further back in time to 1066 in the Battle of Hastings, we recall that William the Conqueror brought with him an army of Norman invaders who defeated King Harold Godwinson. With William installed on the throne, French became the language of the ruling elite. Still to this day, we have markers of that historic divide. Consider the alternative words for meat and the animal, the French word beef as opposed to the Germanic cow, or the French poor, for the flesh of the Germanic pig. While the English-speaking workers tended to the animals, it was the French-speaking aristocracy who dined on the flesh. So the use of French in the Paris map tells us this map was for the aristocracy, created within the church, but using the language of the nobility. When we take another close look at the medieval map, we start to realize that there are things missing. There is no damage, no mold, no watermarks, creases, or folds. This map was not stuffed in a pocket of a weary traveler. It wasn't caught in a rain shower or dropped in a puddle. In 800 years of life, the map has not been damaged through use. It seems, then, that this map was not a practical guide for journeying, but rather had a different use not an instruction manual or practical guide on how to get to Jerusalem, but rather this is a map for the mind, to create for the traveler an imagined pilgrimage to the exotic center of the birth of Christianity, a journey for the spirit, not 
for the body. St. Albans Cathedral was a great center of worship and scholarship, and Matthew Paris, a renowned scholar, met and mixed with many great figures of the 13th century, entertaining illustrious guests, including even King Henry III. Paris would dine with and speak with his noble guests, and he operated a sort of medieval lending library, where his chronicles and accounts of the world and history were shared with the aristocracy of the day. Perhaps, after a fine meal with his noble guests, they would retire to a quiet corner of the abbey, and this itinerary would be brought out, and they would go together on a pilgrimage of the mind, stopping variously in Canterbury and Dover, crossing a wild sea and working through the French Alps, and down to Rome, and in their imaginations they would cross deserts, see exotic animals, and consider the adventures they would have on their long imaginary pilgrimage to the Holy Land. This has been the History of Britain in a Hundred Objects. That's all for this week. Goodbye!